ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਫਤਿਹ ਕੈਨ ਯੂ ਹੀਅਰ ਮੀ ਯੈਪ ਕੈਨ ਯੂ ਹੀਅਰ ਮੀ ਯੈਪ ਲਾਊਡ ਐਂਡ ਕਲੀਅਰ ਰੀਲੀ ਲਾਊਡ ਐਂਡ ਕਲੀਅਰ ਸੋ ਫਰਸਟ ਆਫ ਅਪੋਲੋਜੀਜ਼ ਫਾਰ ਦ ਡਿਲੇਡ ਐਪੀਸੋਡ ਸੀ ਥਿਸ ਇਜ਼ ਵਾਟ ਆਈ ਲਰਨਡ uh someone actually sent us a message one of the team members and uh, it was a question they received from a listener and do you know what the question was tell me how many people on a monthly basis do you often trigger oh mm, not enough is the correct answer not enough so apparently what's happened is that some of the triggered lot from what i hear have gone to nena devi did a massive havan manifested corona devi and they've sent her after me so i was done with the virus for a few days but now i'm up back and running again <laughs> so the devi corona devi could not really do much to me how uh, it's good to have you back <laughs> yeah, good to oh well you know people will some people will obviously disagree with that especially the triggered listeners well the issue is uh, if they don't get triggered anymore how would they on their social currency yep well there you go how will they end their social currency now <clears throat> one of this triggered individuals saying we're on the topic now you mentioned when uh, you remember what i mean to say is that when we interviewed professor rajkumar hans who rediscovered the shri gurkatha of pai jeta Do you remember he mentioned a specific beard sahib of the guru granth sahib called the kehir singh ravidasia beard he did yep now this beard by kehir singh ravidasia is pretty important because at the end of it kehir singh felt compelled to put down he was a ravidasia and he also provided an explanation and the explanation is that the guru granth sahib is such a guru that someone like him a ravidasia the lowest of the low has been given the highest of the highest places in the heavenly realms that's his belief mm-hmm. now funnily enough what happens is that the debate started over the ragamala and i'm sure you have heard about gani gurdet singh's book mandavani which pretty much explicitly proves that it wasn't part of a majority of past historical beards even to the degree he quotes kavi santok singh who calls ragamala kachibani right yep that's true yet the people who claim that kavi santok singh received darshan from guru gobind singh ji but their times those very people argued that the ragamala is factual <laughs> that's also true now without commenting without you know providing air on view on the validity or invalidity of the ragamala this individual actually turned around and claimed that you know all the beers, several beers i mentioned have ragamala and so it must be authentic but here's the thing up till that point he hadn't even heard about the kehar singh ravidasia beer not just him i would say a vast majority of people don't even know that this uh, the beer exists and one of our listeners in the united states they actually sent me a message and they said well we listen to your episode on you know understanding sikh history and it's it's pretty ludicrous how sikhs themselves find all these ways to argue against the facts i mean here's a beard which no one has seen before a beard which hasn't been you know thoroughly examined by the individuals they call scholars 
they haven't even heard of this beard their scholars haven't heard of this beard but suddenly when it's brought up only edgebiachija you know this must have that as well because my baba ji says it's right i have to impose it on everything in history i have to prove by hook or crook that my baba ji is right even if baba ji is a liar the way they do it they arrive at the answer first and then they will you know do uh, 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 those swim up the stream and try to uh, fit the narrative according to their own personal beliefs according to their own personal beliefs and I, and i remember this was something which happened with zakar naik you remember him that islamic preacher who got you know ran out of india or something i think anyway, he's in malaysia right now yep I think he's most wanted in India as well he's most wanted in several countries apparently from what i understand but nike had this thing and this is what they pointed out people like nike construct facts to explain a theory well mr nike kind of agree what the meaning of the word theory is yep whereas in reality intelligent people construct theories to fit the facts Hmm. Yep. So massive difference down there and I suppose like EH Carr says when you start seeing history among other things in life outside the realm of human comprehension well then you're not really left with anything at the end of the day which allows you to pass any moral judgments or even consider what the progress your society has made in terms of history. and i believe this is how things have happened in the past look progression isn't a straightforward line seeing that we're on the subject progression is a series of broken lines society progresses society reaches a height society regresses society devolves and then that society picks up again from where it's failed i mean if you look at karl saraj after guru gobind singh ji we have banda singh there's a linear straightforward line you can draw a line on a paper and say that's karl saraj and baba banda singh suddenly you have a sharp systematic dip because banda singh has been betrayed by binod singh and karn singh and then suddenly you have that very sharp dip going up quite considerably because that's dwab kapoor singh then you have a series of minor blips on there going down and up down and up all the kalukaras like you know leaders like jassa singh alwaliya and the bara misla de sardar who at the end lost their vision of panthic unity then you have a sharp you know dip again and then you have a really big you know ascension with maharaja ranjit singh coming on the scene and then you have another considerable dip right off the paper onto the table and onto the floor after we lost karl swaraj the sikh empire so you know if we talk about progress in any sense of the term it's going to be down and up down and up down and up rather than any continuity true yep however what these other types are trying to do you know when you have progress going up and down up and down up and down the thing is there's always going to be a aspect of society or a civilization or a community which maybe during the times it was required that community and society made considerable advances considerable progress and as a result it acquired power however regarding progress when the line starts going up there's obviously a new form a new phase or an entirely new civilization community or society which has emerged on the scene and that heralds the end of the old society now that old society isn't going to go down without a fight but go down it must 
do you remember when uh, the steam engine, well, not you remember, do you know when the steam engine was brought into, like, let's say, ma uh, mass production and it replaced uh, workers in, like, let's say, factories? Yep. Do you know how many people were opposed to this new, new technology? Well, quite a considerable number of thousands, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they were riots. They burned down factories. Yep. And that was the fear of advancement, wasn't it? That was the fear of change. Uh, yeah, and also because the person looks as if we are losing our job. A single machine is doing a job for 100 people now, so, you know. Yep. So... On that very subject of fear, let's just start with what we had in mind today. That was an episode on fear, but because it got pushed so far behind. Anyhow, <clears throat> look, here is another interesting quandary we have. If I tell you that I had a fear of bungee jumping, but yesterday I went bungee jumping and I jumped off the cliff and I was successful at not showing any fear, will you accept that as being the truth? Uh, knowing you, yes. Yep. So that is what we call a factual truth because it's a fact that has happened. On the other hand, we interpret facts through values. Values are the medium which shape our perception. So essentially, when we interpret a fact, we do it through our values. Now, when the Guru Granth Sahib says that each and every mortal is born within fear, lives within fear, dies within fear, wastes their life in fear, even though they can overpower their fear and overcome it, do you believe that to be the truth? Yep. Now, someone might say, well, the fingers that Amarjeet Singh jumping over a, uh, you know, jumping off a cliff during a bungee jump is the factual truth. When Gurbani says that everyone can overcome truth, how can that be a truth? Because that is advice. Well, at the end of the day, that truth is what we call you call a value judgment. A value judgment essentially has the power to make the factual truth. Now, <clears throat> let me give you some examples. Have you heard of Pai Jason, the Sikh martyr? Which one? Okay, so the story goes like this. Now, Pai Jason was having a bath in his village pond. He comes out. And just then on the road, a Mughal governor and, the, and his Hindu prime minister appears. Along with their armed guards, they see Pai Jaising. Now, you know, Sikhs have bounties put on their head and Pai Jaising and his family are exposing themselves to considerable risk by living where they are, but they have no other alternative. So they come along to Pai Jaising and they tell him, look, we have a sack of tobacco. We want you to put it on your head carry it across the river, and we will let you live, seeing you're a Sikh. Now, you know, obviously the upgrade lot with their logic and their intellect. Now, you know, I, know, I can imagine what the radio hosts would be saying at the moment. Why did Pai Jason want to die? All he should have done was accept the condition and take it across. That's logic. Your life is preserved. You know, etc. On the other hand, if you look at it, the ability to say no, the virtue to say no, the prerogative to say no, the privilege to say no has been given to human society after a lot of sacrifices. Correct. Right? When we say no to someone, essentially, psychologically, there is a 
reaction which is going on, a biohistorical reaction, if you can, you know, appreciate the term, which is saying that a negative means this individual can enforce that action to the highest degree possible. If, you know, someone says to me, okay, let's just take by Jason, for example. He was told to take the sack of tobacco over the river. He refused. They knew, his detractors knew that his negativity, his refusal is backed up by the fact that either he will fight us or either he will die, but he will not concede on his beliefs. Right? They already knew what he was going to do. So, for us, by Jason is a martyr, but for them, he was essentially a victim of their frustration with Zeke's. Hmm. Right. Now, what happens is that by Jaising and his family are dragged out of the village, all the Hindus and Muslims of the village betrayed them, they're hung upside down, stripped nude, and then their skin is basically played off. This is how they die. Pretty gory. Ah, so now, they differentiated between us and the Hindus. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, when they do say that there was this Nathan Sikhi back in the day, the British created differences. Well, I mean, you know, obviously, if you look at all those contemporary accounts from Mughal, Afghan, even Rajput and Maratha sources, there was always an ability to distinguish Sikhs and the rest of the population. And we will have more on that in a future episode, which we're about to do. But for now, so that is by Jason. Let's leave the eighteenth. Yep. I was under the under the impression that modern Zikhi is the Christian of the British. <laughs> we will have more on that. We will have lots more on that. But let's leave the eighteenth century for now and come into the twentieth century. Now, have you heard of Admiral James Stockdale? Uh, Vietnam. Yep, Vietnam. Yep. So, do you know what he did? Uh, I think I have a fairly good idea what he did. I think he was captured. Yep, he was part of the Hanoi Hilton, the six, you know, high-ranking American prisoners captured by the Vietnamese, and they were put in a jail in Hanoi, and they came up with this term, the Hanoi Hilton, just to sort of lighten the stress around their captivity. Stockdale was the highest-ranked prisoner ever in that war. He was actually a commander aboard a destroyer. Okay. Right. Now, the Stockdale story is that he's part of the Bomber Command. He heads off. It's pretty unconventional for such a high-ranking officer to take to the field, but off he goes in his plane to drop bombs. And they're met by dog resistance from the Vietnamese, and he is shot down. He, you know, discards his plane, ejects himself out, parachutes into a village, and he's obviously captured. Now, once he's captured, he's dragged to the, you know, POW camps, and there they start torturing him, and soon they learn who he is, so they put him in the Hanoi Hilton. Now, <clears throat> the belligerents in this case had a vision, and what they wanted to do, they wanted to, you know, parade Stockdale as like a prize trophy on TV and on radio, you know, in front of the then media to show that their result could not be broken, given that they had such high-ranking, you know, commanders and officers being shot down. What they wanted to do was say, well, look how desperate America is. It's sending, you know, strategic officers into tactical battles, given the fact that strategic officers rarely take to the field. And Stockdale knew what was going to happen. So first they made a plan 
they wanted to take a picture of him and, you know, publish it worldwide. That, look, this is the man we have captured. Now, Stockdale knew that if they actually took a picture of him, they would also be able to refute the fact that they're torturing all these prisoners. So, you know what he did? He went into his prison room. It had a glass window facing inwards. So, really, even if he broke it, he couldn't, you know, escape because then he would have a hallway with armed guards to traverse. He actually managed to smash that window, take shards of glass, and he stuck those glass those glass pieces right into his scalp, twisted them and ripped them out, disfiguring himself. Hardcore. Hardcore. So that's essentially the photograph gone. Because really, if you were to take a picture of him at that stage, well, he would have those gaping scars, those raw, raw wounds in his head you wouldn't really be able to deny the accusation that you have been torturing him. So what the what his uh, captors did was they grabbed him, dragged him to their torturing department, and there they broke his fingers just to teach him a lesson. So later their officers were sitting down and they came up with a new strategy. Well, you know, why take a picture of the man? Why not just use a radio broadcast and they can compel him to speak? Now, the finger Stockdale knew that they probably had techniques which, which would, you know, force him to speak. So next thing he does, once his fingers are beginning to heal, he has someone help him. They smash a timber chair, take the spokes out, rip out the splinters, and he stabs those splinters through his tongue and into his cheek. So then his mouth is left swollen. He can't talk. Sounds like a hardcore vegetarian. <laughs> yep so what they do then is from what I've heard the, his capture, captures came along again put his hand between a door jam and just kept on repeatedly shutting the door until his hand you know was smashed to a pulp so no photograph no interview now they decided to do something else. They decided, well, at least we could put him in a car, put a hat over his head, and parade him from a distance to show to the Americans standing at the, you know, territorial edge of their holdings. Now Stockdale did the greatest thing he could do. He actually climbed atop a two-story building and jumped off, breaking his legs. Man, okay. Right? So he knew... That once they actually got to where the Americans were, obviously the Americans would be interested in having a talk with him, even if they couldn't liberate him. And they would surely ask, well, can you please get out of the car? Stockdale wouldn't be able to because his legs were broken. And that would point the guilty finger at the people who were, you know, trying to parade him in front of the world. Now, <clears throat> Stockdale was released after seven years. His torturer said enough of him. No matter what they used on him, he pretty much ended up psychologically torturing them. So reverse psychology. Anyhow, out of frustration, they couldn't kill him. The world was a more civilized place. They decided, you know, to let him go. And so he tortured himself. Well, they could torture him. Uh, can you please repeat that? He tortured himself more than what they could do to him. Pretty much. So. He came out of prison and they asked him back in the States because, you know, he received the rank of admiral that, you know, what was it which kept you going? 
And this is what Stockdale said. He said, well, the thing is that in a crisis, you need to accept there is a crisis, right? Yeah, of course. Yep. And the biggest thing was that the crisis I had confronting me was that I was captured. I had no way of getting out alive. So what I did was I accepted martyrdom, death, as a price I would have to pay to ultimately acquire victory over the enemy. Now, all the optimists who were actually imprisoned along with them, who were captured along with them, they had this thing, you know, tomorrow will be a better day or next week will be a better day. We will be released this Christmas, next Christmas, the Christmas after. Basically, within those seven years, all the optimists dropped dead like dominoes because at the end of the day, they did not have the sheer willpower to accept the reality of their situation. He and the others who survived, particularly him, now they call it the Stockdale Paradox. What it is, is that you need to accept the cold, hard, brutal reality of your situation while also being optimistic that you will be able to triumph over it. Hmm. Now, the Stockdale Paradox changes the equation altogether. Now, of course, it's named after him, but it is a historic phenomena, a psychological phenomena, which has been observed, you know, over and over again. Now, how this relates with Pai Jaising is like this. The human brain, as we're beginning to understand it now, has an emergency response system, and we call it the limbic system. The limbic system's primary functional instrument is the amygdala, right? Almond-shaped little organ attached to your brain starts vibrating when you feel that you're in danger. Now, <clears throat> the thing is, we are all children of the amygdala. This is what Gurbani observed. We are born in fear. Fear is transferred in three ways. It is done epigenetically. So the you know ability to feel fear is within us when we are born. It comes from our parents. It's genetic. This realm of science is only now beginning to be comprehended. Secondly, our beliefs shape our fear. And thirdly, our society shapes our fears. So we are born with, you know, a very fertile ability to feel fear, which is rapidly, you know, given growing spurts, almost given testosterone by society, by our parents, by our beliefs to increase itself. Ultimately, what happens is we are left, you know, as fearful creatures and the amygdala takes us over. Now, it's really easy for it to take over, but it's really hard to turn it off. And that is why one of the five vices which Gurbani identifies is fear or fear. See, here's how things go with fear. <clears throat> Say, for example, Navjit Singhji, you have lied to your wife that today I'm going to come from work early to take your daughter to the movies. Just imagine. I know it's way out of it, but just imagine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. You go to work. You know that if last week you had put in enough time, you could have completed the project report and given it to the boss. So what happens is now that you're going to do the project report in the time you were supposed to take your kid to the movies. This is just a basic trivial example, which is relevant nowadays. So what happens next is you pick up the phone and you lie to your wife. Hey, hey honey, that something has come up. You know, you don't want to tell her that you, you know, 
screwed up at work, you tell her you need to go to a friend who has died or someone else. She becomes inquisitive. She starts asking questions. Now, suddenly your brain starts thinking, well, wait a second. What if she starts thinking I'm having an affair or something else? What's going on? My kid isn't talking to me anymore. One lapse, one fear-based decision, you know, one decision which you made out of fear, which is to lie, suddenly ends up taking your life, right? To hide that one lie because you fear the truth coming out ultimately, which is that you're not good at your job, you start lying more and more and the fear loop keeps on increasing because every time you lie, you have a fear being growing in you that that lie will be caught out and the truth will come. That usually what happens. And that is one trivial example. If you look at it from a religious point of view, now, of course, they say lying is bad because, well, lying causes fear. Lust causes fear. Anger causes fear. Because Gurbani knows, you know, what Gurbani says, what the gurus knew was that there would always be, you know, instances of rationality, even in the worst of humans, where they would be able to conceive of what alternative they could have done in the situation, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, at the end of the day, that position has a merit. But the way things are going now is that, you know, for example, look, let's just take a look at Indian society. Let's have two friends. Uh, can you give them some Indian names? Of course. Sonu and Monu. Okay, yeah. So let's make, so who do you want to make the female? Sonu or Monu? Oh, there's a female here. Yeah. Okay. Uh just give them any any name, Jordan Mary. Let's go with that. Okay, yep. So now Sonu is the male. He grows up in a very rigid religious family. Dad's successful, mom's successful, or so he thinks. As he grows up, he sees they're not really happy with their lives. So what happens is that he has a repeat of what happened with his father and his mother. He goes out and sees poverty. He's told that this is the result of bad karma. That, you know, you could be rich, but if you do bad stuff in your past life, you're going to be born poor in this life. Imagine the child who has no ability to fathom the reason, the cause behind poverty being given that, you know, explanation that poverty, that being poor is a penalty, is a divine sin. His amygdala starts vibrating straight away. Can't he just say that it's the fault of the white people? The very limbic system which he was supposed to control has started controlling him. So what he does next is this. He starts following what his parents say, even if it's wrong. You have to go worship this God. You have to worship that God. You have to do this. You have to do that. Ultimately comes to a point that, Sonu, you have to do this bullshit course. You have to do that bullshit course. You need to go into engineering college. You need to go to the USA. Ultimately, he's, you know, he undertakes a career not because he feels he can make a difference in the world through that career, but because he fears the alternative which he believes or has been led to believe is poverty. Hmm. You know, in most of these psychological classes, I have a friend in Washington and she's a psychologist and she was telling me that a majority of Indian men, especially people of Indian origin, uh, non-Punjabis, to be honest, non-Sikhs, okay, let's just be a bit more, you know, clear. If they lose their job once, it's really hard for them to get back on their feet again. 
And why is that? Because there is this religious, cultural, and societal fear that it has come about due to bad karma or it's not their fault. Now, look, here's the thing. Obviously, minority appeasement exists and it's come to such a degree that we are giving people jobs for the way they look and for the way they will reflect back on us rather than the people who are conversant with the job and who have the ability to deliver a very good final product. Hmm. Right? Okay. Yeah. No. Sonu is a shit engineer. He's in the United States, but he's a shit engineer and his boss is a white man. And the guy tells him, well, look, buddy, we got a COVID pandemic. Your work record isn't so good. Your work effect isn't so good. I think you're going to cost me extra money. I can't afford it in the pandemic. I'm letting you go. End of story. Now, Sonu goes home and what happens? It must be my past karma or that white bastard was racist. Excuse <laughs> me, the letter. There you go. But there's no self-introspection within himself as to what it is about me which, you know, made me get sacked today. There's no that clear, conscientious moment of internal introspection. Similarly, if you look at Monu, who we both agreed was the woman. Mona. <laughs> okay, yep, let's look at Mona. <laughs> Mona grows up in a society, she grows up in a home, she's showing spinster woman aunties who weren't able to marry your cousins. She sees them being treated like burdens. Not their fault, but it's just the way religion and society condition her. Ultimately, her limbic system takes over as well, that I'm going to marry the first boy I can so I don't end up like them. Mm -hmm. And let's look at Punjab. No matter how educated the girl is, even if the guy from overseas is a bloody umbly, she's going to get married to that umbly to go overseas. Am I right or not? Tell me, am I a liar or not? Well, as a kid, I've attended many such a wedding. Yep. As long as she dies abroad. <laughs> no, not even dies. It's like, you know, the fella's old enough to be her uncle or something, but yeah, if she's going to move overseas, the entire family might follow her in a few years. So it's going to be a good life. It's a, it's a trade-off. It's a transaction, basically. That's a transaction. It's all coming from you know fear-based reactions. Now, scientifically speaking, there are societies, communities, religions, you know, a whole horde of plurals here, which allow themselves to be taken over by their amygdala, by their limbic system. If my limbic system has taken over my reactions in life, I meet you, I'm going to compel you to become the same, and it's a affliction which spreads like that. Essentially, it's a virus, the ultimate virus, fear. Now, okay. the, yep. I have a little question for you. Yes. We have talked about physical fear, yeah? Yeah. We could say technically fight or flight, yeah? Yep, yep. In today's world, I don't think that if, if I you know, go out of my house, uh, I'm more concerned that I, if I could come back alive or something. People are more afraid of what other people are going to think of them. Yep, and this is what I'm getting to. The point here is... 
people still die today, right? If we say the limbic system has outlived its usefulness, well, no, really, because the limbic system is primarily concerned with one thing, and that is passing on your genes. Now, it can yeah, do that so through flight. Yep. It can do that through flight, through fight, or fuck. Three ways. And that's why, you know, many people who have a heightened sense of fear and they're trying to overcome it, they usually fell prey to lust, you know, prostitution. That's especially true for the guys. The thing is, if you look at it more clearly, the fear of death has been replaced by the fear of the public court. But the ultimate outcome is the same. On one hand, I don't want to die. That is historic. But today it is, I don't want to die in infamy. You see that assessment? Uh, I think I do, yeah. Right. Now, the thing is, visualization. Visualization is a pretty good tool down here. And uh, Kato, the younger, actually established this. Now, you know, obviously avoiding the Abrahamic lens, nothing lens phenomena, this new stupidity which is taking us over. Whatever the great historic figures observed, they gave those principles names like, you know, Stockdale had the Stockdale paradox. Cato the Younger had his own three principles. Now, a bit on Cato the Younger. He was a Roman reformist, and Cato was the only man in the world who took on Julius Caesar, and rather than submit to Caesar's autocracy, he stabbed himself in the gut and died. Yep, that, that's, that's what it did. Now, the record has it that he literally told his men that I'm going to kill myself, and then he killed himself. Big guts. Yep. Now, the thing is that Kato had these three things. Now, if Kato had been alive today, he would have understood the power of visualization. Obviously, Gurbani talks about overcoming fear, but how we overcome fear is up to us. Now, if you look at the Navy SEALs, if you look at all these super soldiers, we might say, in the past, you know, Khalsa warriors, Scythian horsemen, Roman legionaries, and today we have the Navy SEALs and the British and NZSAS operatives. Without any drugs, how are they able to operate so damn efficiently in combat? Have you considered that? Oh, I haven't talked to Joko Willing yet. Willing, <laughs> yet. Yep, no, no. Joker is a good man. The thing is that today they've understood the power of psychology. What Kato was only able to assume, they've confirmed as being true. So, right, the thing is, trauma shapes our personality. Trauma leads to fear, and fear shapes our personality. Easy to understand. So, when we are traumatized, we form two memories at the same time the event specifics as to how it happened, why it happened, where it happened, when it happened. And the emotions we felt when it happened. That's the second part. So neuroscientists from Harvard University have shown that you can never erase what's called a semantic memory. That is the events and the facts. What you can do instead is write stronger emotional memories in the area of your brain responsible for what is called the executive function. So we can consciously recall specific moments along with an original memory that was written with the help of two parts of the brain called the amygdala and the hippocampus. Right. If you look at all these historic warriors, take, for example, seals today. When a seal was younger, 
he might have newly drowned, right? Mm-hmm. And this is something they've actually seen in SEAL training since Vietnam is that, you know, the individuals who are not able to swim or are shit swimmers, they usually end up being the best swimmers at the end of their training. And what it becomes is something like this. So say you're the SEAL instructor and we have a SEAL in training and you tell him, okay, I mean, okay, let's have American name, George. George, jump into the bloody pool of water. That's a British and name. George... <laughs> okay, so what would be an American name in this context? Humor me. Baba. Okay, I'll just stick with Will Smith. Anyway, you tell Will Smith to jump into the pool. And Will has this moment of soul searching. His brain stops him. And the amygdala reminds him, remember what happened last time you jumped into a pool of water? You nearly drowned. Now, Will visualizes his own death. That I'm going to drown. And then he takes factors. Now, you know, let's just remember something. If you can use the subconscious mind, because the subconscious mind processes 90% of what you observe, and the conscious mind only 10%. If you can master the subconscious mind through, you know, self-visualization, through self-talk, it's pretty good. So what you can end up doing is changing your perception. So if the conscious mind tells, well, well, wait, wait a second, what is too deep? You're going to drown. Suddenly, the subconscious mind, which Will Smith has actually managed to control by, you know, repetitive and intensive exercises, by doing things which he's scared of, that mind swings into action and tells him, well, wait a second, Will, I'm processing the things which you see but don't actually register. You've got instructors all around you. They will save your ass. So with that in mind, Will steps forward. He's got butterflies in his stomach. His legs are trembling. He's sweating but he jumps into the water. You have to fight against yourself if you want to control your fears. He jumps into the water, he passes the test, he comes up, right? The area of his brain where he has that memory of him drowning, suddenly that memory is pushed to the back and a new page is added where it says, even though he nearly drowned, then, now, He's not drowned. He's actually come out with flying colors. And that becomes a confidence booster. Well, this exact thing happened to me. Yep. You want to share that experience? Uh, you know, uh, Coromandel Peninsula, uh, there's a Karangahaki Gorge. Yep. The river is Ohenemori. Yep. So I used to go hiking there. It's a quite a good river to go hiking in. And uh, lunch break, we decided to take a swim, yeah? So we were just jumping into the river from uh, like from the cliffs. Yep. And uh, I think it could have been like 10 meters or something. Yeah, around 10 meters, yeah. I jumped first, yeah. Yep. Let's say I jumped in the northeastern direction. Sorry, sorry, northwestern direction. Yep. But on my second jump, by mistake, uh, I jumped slightly west of it. So both my feet, I uh, jumped foot first. Both my feet hit an underwater rock. Ouch. My body got stunned, all the air in my lungs got, let's say, expelled. And I was underwater with no air in my lungs and my body stunned and I couldn't swim. Hmm. <laughs> I really thought that was it. And you know, the, the water got darker because it was coming out of the forest. It's like a bit of like greenish tint. Yep. And I really thought, okay, that's it. But after like 
maybe five, six, five or six seconds, I was able to recover. I was able to swim back up. And I swam to the shore, relaxed for 10 minutes, and I told myself, if I don't do it again right now, I'll be always be afraid of water. Yep. I went back up, went back up the same rock, and then jumped in the correct direction. Took me 10 minutes. See, here's the thing. <clears throat> Tackle your fears one at a time. Learn I actually never thought of the exact thing. I was in the air, somebody took a picture. I have it. Yeah. <laughs> Memories. Well, you know, point uh, being, learn to confront your fears one at a time. Get used to the bodily changes and expose yourself more and more to that specific fear. So what you're really doing is your subconscious mind is the realm of fear. Right? When you <clears throat> when you don't learn to use it. When Gurbani talks about sort and man, majority of the times it's talking about the subconscious mind because it's the subconscious mind which really you can say reincarnate if you want to use that adjective. It has all the bestial reactions ingrained in it from the time you were, you know, just a beast and not a human. You have to stop that subconscious mind from going and coming, going and coming, becoming animalistic, becoming human. You just want it to be human. And really, you want to hack into your perception. So now what you're talking about is that you went up onto that rock and jumped again. I did. Yep. Now, I'm sure your brain would have been in overdrive going, no, we can break our neck, we can break our legs, we can drown, no one will find us, what will Bebe Bapu do, etc., etc. Your brain would have been in over, you know, hype mode straight away. But the fact all I knew that was went... that I'm not. Uh, all I knew was I'm not supposed to jump in that direction because... I already knew what the results was going to be. That's another rock there. Avoid that rock, jump in this direction. But the fact you managed to overpower your emotions by one massive mental effort and start jumping again, it sort of reduced the fear until it became more or less a caution rather than a life-altering impediment. Am I right? Yeah, it, it, it became a little lesson. Yep, it became a little lesson. Now... Regarding Admiral James Stockdale, Stockdale would have had a lot of training. He would have flown bombers in training. You know, he would have been taught how to lead 100 to 100,000 men. You know, he was quite high ranked. He would have had all this training which would have boosted his confidence. So really, when you see special forces like, you know, the Vababir Singh which was created by Nawab Kapoor Singh, all these individuals like Pai Sukha Singh, Pai Matab Singh, they were the cream of the crop, essentially. They were cropped away from the normal Sikh soldiery because they had that ability to turn their fear into fuel for what they wanted to achieve, right? And that's what you have with special forces operators today. So when, you know, these classes which happen, these courses which happen, this training, when they say, well, you know, we're going to divide the chaff from the wheat, we're going to kick all the useless ones out. There's a necessity to kick all the useless ones out because you want to keep the ones who can use their fear as a fuel. That's what it essentially comes down to. Now, by Jay Singh, when he's actually confronted with the, you know, reality that he's going to die, he accepts the cold, brutal, hard reality of the situation, but also becomes optimistic that he knows how he can win. He decides it's better to die rather than concede any ground. Most probably, he knew he was dead anyhow. Yep. Now, here's the thing. If someone asks how by Jason actually managed to overcome his limbic system, you know, the system would have been screaming, concede, surrender, concede, surrender. Well, here's the thing. 
today you have a lot of Sikh businessmen, Sikh entrepreneurs, who we call Babaji's, Brahmagani's, Deridad, Sadhistans. And they have this thing that you need to do Nam Japo and your fear will go away. So you close yourself in a room, sit down with a rosary, and start doing Vaheguru, Vaheguru, Vaheguru. Now here's the thing. Why is this same advice not recorded in any historic Sikh Granth? It's not in Ratan Singh Pant, Pant Prakash. It isn't even found in that you know, Book of Lies, the Suraj Prakash. It's found nowhere this advice. If this was the cure to your fears, why didn't those Sikhs mention it? Or those chroniclers? If something is effective, you really know it's effective when the, when the enemy adopts it. Here's the thing. <clears throat> In those days, when you went to take Amrit, now we're going to have an episode really soon on the Sikh identity. You were expected to keep your cash and leave, live the Sikh lifestyle and you were called Sehjitari. When you went to take Amrit and put on the Kakash that uniform, you had to prove yourself. For by Jason, he would have had to prove himself surely. Now, what his task was ultimately, that's only what history knows. We haven't really found out what his task would have been. But, you know, we have these Sakis of Guru Gobind Singh Ji given, you know, brave warriors the ability to go kill the enemy or die in the process before they come and take Amrit. Writers to prepare, you know, manuscripts of such important worth and then keep them safe and preserved from the enemy around them. You have a lot of these stories which show you that they had to master their fears. So when Pai Jason had mastered his fear, he received Amrit. His family received Amrit. So when the decision came for them to use their fear as fuel, they did it instantaneously. But if you look at the Amritaris we have today, one dung and the whole bunch clear out. Verlai koi melu, kara. Not just that. I, I think uh, people know this and they're too afraid to say it, but there is this element that people take Amrit to, let's say, expecting something magical to happen to them. Exactly. That's how we were actually, that's how I was tricked into taking Amrit as well. Something magical would happen, but not some, nothing magical happened. What I later learned was that you have to live Gurbani. Once you live Gurbani and you take Amrit, then you become more disciplined, more staunch, more firm in your beliefs. And that's exactly what happened with Pai Jason. He lived Gurbani. You know, Guru Tegh Bhadr Shabads do not fear, do not strike fear. That's how he lived. And ultimately, when his final test came, he passed with flying colors. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you've heard about this. There was a lawyer in uh, Punjab who fought a lot of famous cases. And before that, he was actually in a, he was a survivor of what happened in Delhi in the 80s. And he actually went to assassinate Rajiv Gandhi, who was the prime minister at the time. Do you remember his name? Uh, yeah, the guy who was hiding in the bushes when he took a shot at Rajiv Gandhi. I don't remember his exact name, but uh, I think I know who it is. Now, I was reading his, uh, you know, one of his friends' accounts, and they were saying that basically when Rajiv Gandhi had the investigation done, they found out that he actually had been hiding in those bushes for several days. How he managed to stay there exposed to the elements and be undetected was amazing. 
it, you know, he finally came to him and said, look, I know you wanted to kill me, but do you want a job as my personal bodyguard and be trained as a soldier so you can train my soldiers to be the master of psychological, you know, strength as you yourself are? Hmm. <laughs> okay. Right? Where does the okay. psychological power, psychological strength come from? Conviction, I would say. Conviction and the fact is that, uh, if I believe correctly, 2013 or 2016, neuroscientists in the United States found that, you know, high-ranking CEOs and uh, extreme sports athletes and, you know, special forces soldiers, these people use fear to fuel themselves. So they feel fear, but they have a very different perception of it than we do. And they use all those biochemicals to push them to do that which their brain is telling them not to do. Now, <clears throat> obviously, if I climb up on an eight-story building and decide to jump, well, I'll be an idiot if I don't listen to my brain, right? Mm, okay, yeah. Right? I'll surely be an idiot to do that, or if I crash my car somewhere, I'll be an idiot. I mean, if I end up killing someone, the judge isn't going to expect, you know, accept my argument that, hey, I wanted to conquer my fear, so I decided to smash my car into another car. But... <clears throat> What you need to understand is that there's a difference between fear as caution and fear as something which handicaps you from living your life fully and wholly and happily. Okay, a question for you. Yep. You're 50 years old. Oh, okay, thank you very much for that. I feel really happy now. Thanks. Yeah, you live to 50, ripe old age. Okay. Would you rather be a person who's got a massive experience who had who has done what you really wanted to do maybe failed a couple of times or succeeded maybe you got under some injuries you got into some fights or something you lived a good life yeah yep. or you want to be that guy who's safe and secure in his career but he never ever has truly lived he has just existed i would want you to be that? the person i would want to be the person who's lived happily yeah a good life. No, it's not like you, you go nine to five, you spend 20 years or 30 years at a job, then your kids grow up, and then you're retired and you're just watching TV and news and forwarding stupid messages on WhatsApp. You want to be that guy? Mm -hmm. Or you want to be the guy who's, who could be telling your children, hey, once upon a time, I went to do this thing or that thing. I had an adventure, I went skiing or something. I went solo hiking or I got into a fight or something, you know, yeah, adventure. Yeah, like, so, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like I had a podcast which triggered a lot of people. Yeah, and you got shot at and survived. <laughs> well, hopefully not. But I mean, the fact is to conquer your fears, because that's what we're talking about. First, you have to decide if life is going to happen to you and you will make decisions out of fear, or if you're going to face everything, accept responsibility and create a life you offer, making your decisions based on opportunity. Hmm. See, what we have to do is reject the victim mindset. Now, what is the victim mindset? It is one that oh, believes oh, oh. life happens to you. Yep. Victim mindset is simple. I'm a victim. I'm not responsible for anything. 
see, that's how this theory of reincarnation and all these other useless, baseless, you know, theories which Gurbani dismisses, that's how they came in because the victims wanted to justify their victimhood rather than use that as a source of strength to become more than victims, to become the deciders. Well, guess what pays more into this world? There you go. Being victim, eliciting sympathy, getting all that empathy is much easier than, you know, becoming a paragon of strength and leading the way. Is it easy to be a leader or to be led? Is it, it's easier to be led. But if you're a leader, you're responsible. And responsibility is not something people, a lot of people want to take on. See, the thing... The fact is, the victim mindset is one that believes life happens to you, not by you. People who make decisions based on fear often do so because they have an overpowering victim mindset. It is often the default mindset that comes naturally to so many of us because of all the data that was put into our mental hard drives growing up. See, if you want to get rid of fear, to reject your fear, to make it into fuel for what you want to do in life, which is live happily and successfully, and, you know, when you die, you go to your kalpurkwahegu and shine your face and say, well, look, I succeeded in living the life that you gave me thoroughly as per the disciplined existence I believed in, which is sicky. Well, <clears throat> the fact is you have to reject all your fear. Now, let's just look at Guru Nanak. Okay, let's leave Guru Nanak because, you know, we will be then saying that Vaheguru is a form, you know, Vaheguru and Guru Nanak are the same. Let's just come down a little bit <clears throat> and take a look this way. There are so many historical figures in Sikhi. One of those figures, let's just choose a particular figure, let's choose a high caste Hindu figure who hears that caste is useless. They want to become Sikhs. The fear which their parents, their community, their society, their ancestors have ingrained in them is that caste is very sacred. They go to Sangat, sit down with low caste individuals and eat together. Hmm. Right? And then something really terrible happens to them. Oh, here's an example. Have you heard about Pai Manji? Yes, I have. So, Pai Manji is a rich merchant. He believes in Sakhi Sarvar. Here's Guru Arjun's you know, teachings. Decides to become a Sikh. His village kicks him out saying, look, you don't believe in Sakhi Sarvar. This is what will happen to you. We will kick you out. Then his children die off. His money is taken away. His property is taken away. He becomes afflicted with disease. His wife becomes you know, afflicted with disease. Ultimately, they start going to Guru Arjan's Tarbar, and down there in Amritsar, they're doing Langradi Seva. They're only getting enough to eat in the morning and the night, but they don't complain. They keep on eating their lot, their misery increases. Ultimately, one day, Pai Manta decides to go out in the jungles to get wood for Langar, you know, to burn his fuel, falls into a well, and then finally Guru Arjan comes himself and, you know, helps him out and embraces him and takes him back. And Pai Manj tells him his story that this is what has happened to me. And Guru Arjun tells him, well, Pai Manj, the thing is you took responsibility for your life. The fact is, even when you were inside the well, you told me that Maharaja fell in due to my own fault. But the lakkar, the wood, the timber is dry. Please take that before me. Right? 
You mm-hmm. did not allow the victim mindset to get you down. You did not say that because I believe in you. That's why all this bad stuff is happening to me. No, rather what you're saying is that because I believe in you, I have the strength to, you know, confront life itself. You know, there are people today look for soap. That's why a majority of all these Western kids go to Gurdwaras and start believing in Babaji's Jathas and all this, you know, all this stuff which is not necessary to become Sikhs. Fact is, they're looking for Sukh. Peace. They just want peace. I want the girl next door. I want the degree. I want this. I want that. And then when they don't get it, their faith and sickness starts becoming shaken. Now, why do these kids not listen to anything which might be, you know, criticism of their Babaji or of what they believe in is because they know that if pain comes, their beliefs will be exposed as being fake. Your observation is correct. However, if they were like Pai Manjan, they believed in the Guru straight away directly that, you know, Gurbani says, Dukh Sukha a part of life. Dukh Daru It's going to come. Separation is a part of Pukam. We know our parents are going to die. Our loved ones are going to die. Every morning when I wake up, I visualize my own death and the deaths of my loved ones because I know one day they have to die, no matter how much I love them. I actually know a person, and uh, when, when she, she was young, let's say, in school, so basically, like maybe 17 or 18, her father passed away. Yep. She threw away everything related to religion out of her house. All the pictures, all the, even the calendars, and all those, Tuvapati and everything. I wasn't doing this for you to kill my dad. And she became totally irreligious. What if reality had been explained to her? What if the truth had been explained to her from the beginning? Well, you know, this is the thing religion does. True religion, not fake religion. True religion does not promise that life is forever. Are you really expecting that if, if I live a certain way, if I do certain things, Nothing negative will ever happen to me. That's the thing. It's to avoid this negativity. You know, rather than allow the negative to empower them, to refine them, to make them stronger again, they want to avoid it. And ultimately, you know, that's what Guru Nanak is essentially saying. If you only live, you avoid the pains, the trials and travails and tribulations of life. What are you going to get at the end? You know, those people who have contemplated and lived the wisdom which I'm giving, they have run the gauntlet of life. They have confronted its difficulties and come out standing straight, standing tall, standing firm like a rock. When they go to meet their maker, their faces are radiant with joy. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say two things here since we talked about special forces. When, let's say, somebody who is deployed into the enemy territory, what are they most concerned about? Not getting shot or completing their mission? Well, I would hazard that they're actually more concerned about completing their mission. Yeah, getting shot is part of the job. That's something you have to accept on the first day. Yep, that's the cost you accept. Yeah. When a skier, let's say, goes down a slope, what what is, is that person, he or she, more concerned about? In their mind, what exactly are they focusing on? Are they focusing on avoiding the rocks or the trees? Or are they just focusing on finding a path downhill? They're just looking at the snow. I 
has it that they're probably avoiding the trees just to go down? If you, I think uh, I heard it, uh, I think in some podcasts, I will add some to a lot of them. I say, if you're solely looking at trees, trees is what you will get and you will go off path. Okay, I was wrong in that. See, the thing down here is this. If you want to conquer your fears, if you want to live free of fear, if you want to use fear as a fuel, you have to take responsibility for your own life. So their focus is they're afraid that I might get hit a tree or my, I might hit a rock. Yeah? Yep. So that takes their attention off of what they exactly want to do or need to do. That is to ski. So I mean, they're more focused on distraction. I mean, you have known me for a long term, and you know that I'm a fan of martial arts. I mean, I've dedicated my life to martial arts, and you know, currently I'm learning Krav Maga. <clears throat> One thing which we are taught in Krav Maga is that when you go into the warrior mode, that you know, aggression mode straight away, it's now or nothing. Do not fear what essentially ultimately is the outcome. Do not even consider the outcome. Just be in the present and do what you have to do to survive. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I could yeah, agree with that. Yeah. It isn't fear itself, which is, you know, bad. It is the fear of the unknown, which is bad, because we have actually learned to fear the unknown. Now, have you heard of Carl Fiston? Uh, sorry, say that again, please. Have you heard of Carl Fiston? Uh, no, I would say. Okay, so the man Carl Friston <clears throat> is today the leading authority on the development of artificial intelligence. Okay. Academics have what we call an H rating, and an H rating reflects how many times that academic has been quoted or referenced in international papers of repute. Friston has a higher H rating than Einstein. Oh, maybe more papers are being published now. Well, yeah, that's the thing. But the thing is with Friston that Friston has actually developed the algorithm, the brain-like algorithm, which empowers or which powers artificial intelligence. And Friston has actually compared it to <clears throat> the human brain. Uh, there was actually a scientist in Israel, I can't remember his name, Yasin Dudi, I think, and he did an experiment as well. So what he did in the experiment was they actually strapped a person to a chair and gave them a button. And this button actually controlled a little narrow platform in front of them. If they pressed the button in one direction, it came closer to them. And if they pressed it in another, the platform reversed and went back. And they you know, hooked up all these electrodes to that person's brain, the test subjects. And they put a very venomous cotton mouth snake on top of the platform, free. <laughs> roaming around okay yep and what they actually did was they started studying the brain activity so for example if i'm strapped in there they can see my brain has picked up it's a snake it's a venomous snake my brain is going into hyperdrive mode even though i'm not feeling it i press the button to bring the snake closer the snake sees me it starts rearing up it's agitated and my brain is suddenly going into hyperdrive mode all of a sudden, I've started getting sweaty palms. My body's beginning to twitch. My eyes are beginning to dilate. I'm getting really scared. My heart rate has picked up. Now, 85% of test subjects suddenly press the other button to get the snake away. 
Okay, and the 20%? Yeah, what happened with this 80% was that it, when this 80% pressed that they ran other series of tests, you know, even to the degree they were only showing pictures, but their fear had completely overtaken them. And those 80% just could not, even their normal decisions, you know, they just could not operate. Even normal decisions like stepping outside the laboratory was really hard for them. Fear had taken them over so badly. The other percent we have, those people, same reaction, but then they saw something. In their brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is your adult part of the brain, your supervisory brain, which is, you know, the rational part of your brain, that suddenly leaped into action, reminded them that this is just a test. But at the same time, it's a very dangerous test. The snake can obviously bite. There is no safety. But even then, that part of the brain rationalized, well, wait a second, bring the snake closer, bring the snake closer, bring the snake closer. Bring the damn snake closer. And they kept on bringing it closer, closer, closer until the snake could literally sense them. All the snake had to do was just jump off the platform onto their faces and just bite them straight away. Here's the thing, though. That part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, they saw this in real time. It shut down the limbic system and suddenly those people's bodies went into this fast reaction where they were out of the chair, standing behind the chair, and the snake was way away from them. They had a heightened sense of perception, heightened sense of hearing, heightened sense of smell, taste. And unlike those other people who couldn't even walk outside the laboratory, these guys were so relaxed and calm after a few minutes that you just couldn't tell the difference to the point some of them even grabbed the snake by the head and threw it away. And these were people who had never even seen a snake outside a photo book in their lives. Hmm. That psychological mental high these people got is the same type of phenomena which special forces soldiers are able to utilize. They just get that high by being successful. That's a natural high. It does no damage to your body. You know, unlike Bang and Shrab and all that, that's the sort of high which Gurbani says you need to seek out and do. It makes you confidence enough to face any damn situation in life. Now, okay. getting back to Friston, what Friston found that brains like by Jay Singh, Admiral James Stockdale's, these brains, these individuals have learned how to control their free energy. What is fear? Fear is the gap. So that's the gap between your expectation and the outcome, which is reality. In between is what we call free energy. You go switch off a light bulb, you get electric shock. Expectation was something different, but reality is something different. Are you able to overcome that free energy and make another rational decision, or are you going to let that free energy control your life? But can't can't let it control my life. That's the thing. And slowly, slowly, you walk. You know, you wake up to the fact, and you walk towards the path which you know Guru Amarda says, That's the path of mastering your own fear, and that's what Guru Tegbahadur summarizes as being, you know, fear not and frighten not. How many people do you think really can grasp this this entire concept? I know I'm barking out of my ass. <laughs> if we talk about the other kind of field, 
I, I would say the societal fear or the fear of being judged, let's say. Yep. I can't really say what I want to say because I'm afraid of, the, of all the repercussions that might happen. You know, these days, you know, there's this active issue of that uh, a swimmer, Leah Thomas, I think. Yes. People are dead afraid to say anything. Not just afraid, they're forced to support that individual, but on the inside, they are wholly opposed to it. The, the, thing fear, that, the fear of disagreement, the fear of standing alone, and the fear of, let's say, rejecting the masses, it's crippling. The thing of Jeet Singh Ji is that, you know, these things need to be tactically and with keeping one thing in mind that at the end of the day, your vision succeeds over the masses. But the other thing is attitude is caught and not taught. So if the attitude of fear starts from the top, then why do you think the people, the subordinates would not be fearful themselves? Mm -hmm. right. Lions led by sheep and sheep led by lion. Yep, except the sheep can also suffocate the lion. Well, you generous know a lot about sheep. <laughs> so, Navjit Singh Ji, anything to say as a ending is coming up? Uh, well, not. Uh, it's, it's a very deep topic, but we just had a, like, a casual conversation. And I, I'd like to say that in the, in the example of, of uh, the skier I gave, I wasn't able to do it properly. I'll get back to you on that. So really, if you want to conquer your fears, you have a fear of frontier in your mind. That's the line between your fears and what you don't fear. You need to push that frontier forward. You know, you need to push that frontier further and further and further and colonize those vast expanses of your mind. The thing is, ultimately, the key to successfully overcoming your fears is by taking responsibility for your life. Can we also say that we, you, if you are aware that what's the worst that could happen, you might you know, get, get over it a little bit quicker. Yeah, you're right. Now, here's the thing. You know, in the military and in all these other high-profile you know, executive corporations, they use Keto's strategy of visualization. See, this is what Keto used to do when he woke up. He used to imagine the worst happening, his own death, and loving his neighbor. If you visualize the worst happening, you know, it might not happen that way but at least you're psychologically prepped to subconsciously jump into warrior mode and deal with the worst happening because the worst has happened. Mm, yep, 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 of course. See, on a basic level, it works like this. Imagine, see, I wake up. I imagine myself being run over by a truck as I'm crossing the street. Next thing you know, my subconscious mind jumps into action. I don't know it has jumped into action. That's why it's the subconscious mind and not the conscious mind. I'm walking down the street and my subconscious mind sees a truck and it decides, well, wait a second, we can cross from behind the truck or we can cross at another set of lights. So I will wait and I'll be very careful even though I'm impatient and I have to get somewhere before I cross in front of the truck. Now, I don't know why that has happened, but because I visualized it once in the past, the subconscious mind prepares accordingly. Uh, okay, something, okay. Have you observed this or do you know this? Like uh, if you're crossing the street, let, let's say you are driving, yeah? 
and a family is crossing the street or something. Yep. The kid, because their brain is not developed, they will just look at the parents and make a sprint towards them. Yep. In that sense, what exactly is happening there? They don't know the road rules. They don't know the car might hit them or something. They just see that that's my parent, that's my safe spot, just sprint towards it. The limbic system has overtaken them and they've, they've, made, a, they've made a fear-based decision which is based on irrationality because they haven't actually checked the factors and circumstances around them. However, in this case, if the driver has imagined, look, all drivers imagine it in their worst moments running over someone, right? Because they have imagined it, the subconscious mind, you know, jumps into action unless you're a fuckwit and there's no cure for fuckwitism or unless you're drunk. Well, if you see a kid on the road, in your own mind, expect them to act extremely irrationally. I say, this kid is going to be, let's say, going to be in the middle of the road in half a second. Just be really, really careful. That's what I personally do because you can't expect kids to be responsible or know the ways of the world. Well, the thing is, you can only do that if you're rational yourself. If you're an irrational bugger yourself, why would you do that? Well, it's just an example. Yeah, it's a good example because most people can relate to this. Just not people on the road, they drive, and maybe as passengers or something. Maybe as, as walkers or cyclists. Okay, so before we conclude, I have an embarrassing story. We had a bet, me and some of the other guys. And I lost the bet, so here it is. I'm going to tell the story. So 2004, I was in school. And we had the girl next door. And, you know, as kids, we have this stupid vision, especially boys, that I'm going to grow up with her and marry her, etc. You know what it's like, like a <laughs> Bollywood movie. <laughs> okay? And her name was Ashley. I don't know if she listens to us or not. <clears throat> anyway, we had to give the speech on insects. And I had grasshoppers. I went up there and Ashley's looking at me. She was beaming at me because I was bullied in school and Ashley was the only one who did not bully me. Anyway, unfortunately, Ashley is sitting there in front of me. I, I started really strong. I'm like, hey, I'm the victim down here, but I'm going to be the bully really soon. And I got to this part where, you know, soldiers eat insects to survive. It's a part of life and they're pretty good tasting as well. Not that I eat every insect in my house. Actually, I don't eat any insect in my house because, you know, the allegations they make against people like us are funny. You know, they might say something like, oh, these guys are anti-plant picker. They eat grasshoppers or something. Grasshopper is green, so that's acceptable. Yes. Anyway, I see Ashley's face squelching up and I literally forgot what I was saying and I started crying in front of maybe 20 kids. So this is the memory that will keep you alive or that will you know, wake you in the middle of the night and feel the cringiest moment of your life? Anyway, it was pretty cringe. Ashley tried reaching out to me, you know, a few years ago, but I was so humiliated and embarrassed by it. I made a bigger fool of myself. Anyway, then came another time period and they said, well, look, you're in high school. You need to give a speech. You need to give a speech on fundamentalism and attend around and ask them, well, why is it? Because I wear a turban and I got a beard. And they said, no, we just want a speech on bloody fundamentalism, military type school. And they're like, just shut up, man, and go give that speech. Right. I went up. I failed again. I didn't cry, but I just gave such a shitty speech that, you know, everyone fell asleep. And this is what the teacher later told me, that there was no 
risk of you, you know, failing, but you're going to pass with lower grades because you literally put the whole class to sleep. And I was happy. Then came another time period a year later when <clears throat> I had a few fights at school. We had a little gang. And because I had the Jura on top, there was this guy who wanted to pull it, got into a really ugly fist fight. My boys versus his boys. And they also bashed his girlfriend. Now, unfortunately, what happened was that the teacher in my English class, who I credit with making me you know, so successful in life. Now, I respected this teacher quite a lot. And I knew I couldn't fail him. And I wrote a speech. And it was on my Sikh identity. Right? Okay. And there was this girl in class called Haley. We used to call her Haley Bitch. She used to hate my guts because I was, you know, not white. Anyway, I had a chemistry class. Failed a test. Feeling pretty shit walk into the auditorium, the lobby to my English class where I had to give a speech and Haley tells me, oh, well, congratulations, you're next. And I'm like, well, geez, Haley, you're always a bitch to me, but thanks for helping me. And she's like, it's all good. You go ahead. And, you know, she gave me a hug because she was pretty nervous herself because later we found out she was pregnant. So I don't know if pregnant women get angry or what, but yeah, I'm not in that situation yet anyhow. <laughs> and I go into class. Now, Suddenly, everyone's looking at me because, you know, it had spread like wildfire. I was going to give a speech on my identity. And I look at the teacher and I'm like, shit. <laughs> I look at all the other guys and I had a friend enemy called Andros. And Andros is sitting at the back shaking his head. He had long hair. The kid actually thought he was a bloody vampire for some reason. And that's why I've never watched Twilight in my life because it changed Andros's life. And I was scared of that movie. And I was like, shit. No, you're not missing anything. Yep. <laughs> Lord Twilight is sitting there. All these kids. Now you can imagine these kids are rich, affluent, and white, and then there's me. And I look around, I tell Mr. Fry, can you give me some time? I go outside, I come back inside. And it was all about griefing deeply, overpowering the amygdala, and I imagine the worst that at the end the whole school would make fun of me. I was a loner, my boys would leave me, and I was like, you know, shit, you know what? Let the worst happen. I bullshit you not went into the class. First thing I did, I tore up my speech, chucked it away. And you can see all these kids going, oh, what the hell did he do? He's going to fail. And, you know, obviously I had taken to martial arts at that age. I was doing Kyukshin karate and I was really in love with it. So I used to do press-ups on my knuckles on concrete, like they do in Japan. Went to the table and smashed my fist down hard. And I was like, bang. And the table actually cracked. And there was another friend in the class, Casey, and she was sitting at the table and Casey nearly fainted. And then I started racism. And I gave a 12-minute speech. I'm telling you the truth. At the end of that you know, speech, the class which hated me, they rushed and gave me a hug. I received more kisses in my life than that I have today. So you're telling me you picked in high school? After that, my popularity boomed because that speech, I mean, Mr. Fry has it recorded somewhere, but basically what the speech was, was just a, well, I class it as a rant against racism, but it was the fire and brimstone speech, which even made it into the local newspaper. Talked about being a Sikh, talked about 9-11, talked about, you know, putting up with racism, talked about becoming aggressive, building a psychological wall around yourself. 
all those girls in class, even Hayley, were crying. I thought that, that was you going to explode or something. <laughs> well, the thing is, after that, whenever I had to do public you know, speaking, even today, two parts of my mind come up. Ashley and that fire and brimstone speech. And I used the fire and brimstone to go up on stage. I, I mean, <clears throat> there was an incident a few years back and I was being interviewed about, you know, the trade industry, how kids are not doing, you know, building trades anymore. And uh, we had someone come over from the USA, you know, the Trump administration had just won. And it turned off sort of like, you know, low economic, socioeconomic backgrounds usually become tradesmen, you know, builders, painters, etc. And that individual from the States made a comment that, you know, black people rob banks, right? Okay. And I turned around, and this was me who hated public uh, speaking, who was so confident in my ability, and I told him, well, if white, uh, you know, if black people rob banks, white people rob countries, all the white people in the room were laughing their heads off. Well, yeah, uh, if you use the word verb to rob, it's, it's a different way. It's like an upfront payment or it's a backroom deal, depends on what you do or what the color of your collar is. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And like I say, expose yourself to your fears, use them to empower you, to fuel you, and you will live life as Sikhs. That's all for today. Thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you conquer your fears, but guys, please just don't go jumping off buildings and breaking your legs and saying Amarji told me to do it. <laughs> I'd be pretty and, uh, Yeah, and uh, thank you, Ashley, for not turning you into ash. <laughs> pretty much. Vaheguru Ji ka khalsa, Vaheguru Ji ka